the, um, that adage that we hear all the time. If life hands you lemons, what do you do? You make lemonade. So tell me, whose kid actually ends up taking a lemonade stand and turning it into a full-blown business? Anybody you know? You know, surprisingly enough, if you go on the internet, you can find just huge amounts of folks that have done that, starting out with a small, rickety lemonade stand. I don't know if this... And they end up turning it into a full-blown business. Here's one of the stories, and this is how it went. You have, you have your, your son or your daughter, and you're coming home from a ball game, and you're going home, and all of a sudden he sees... Are we still getting that feedback? He sees, um, he or she sees this, this little stand that somebody has in, in your block area, and they've got their table up, and they've got the lemonade, and they've got the pitchers up there with the glasses, and they're selling lemonade, 25 cents, 50 cents. And they start to think to themselves, because I know my son did this, you know, I could probably make a little bit of change, a little bit of money, if I sold lemonade. At 25 cents a glass, small cups, I could probably make a good chunk of money by the end of the summer. Unlike my son, we have some that, that have actually done that. They, they, they get home, they ask mom and dad to help them build a lemonade stand. So they get all the, extra, the excess lumber that they have, they get the nails, the hammers out, and they begin to put this, this little stand together. They get a little paint, brush it on, on the wood, lemonade, 25 cents, and they begin to sell lemonade. They have one successful day after another. They like the profit that's coming in, so they're willing to do it again and again. One day, somebody buys a, a cup of lemonade and says, you know, we have, we have our school games, and we would love to have a lemonade stand there. Would you be so kind as to bring the stand and sell your lemonade there? So he says, hey, why not? I can make a little extra cash. He takes a stand, and he goes to the ball game, and he begins to sell the lemonade. Next time he goes, he decides, you know, 25 cents probably is not enough, so I'm going to raise it to 50 cents. The next venue he goes to, he raises it up to a dollar. Then he gets to $2 a glass for the lemonade. And he's really making a profit. But something happens along, along the way. He finds himself becoming more and more busy. He finds that, that he has to buy more and more lemons. As a matter of fact, he has to make special orders to get them by the crate. He has to make sure that he has enough cups, enough sugar. And he has to make sure that the stand that he, that he has becomes more and more mobile. So he's spending more and more time, more and more money. And one day he sits down and he comes to this, this, this boundary, this decision-making time. And he says, you know, is this just a hobby for me or am I going to make this a career? He says, is this something that I'm just going to do in the meantime or can I actually see this thing all the way through? Am I going to have to hire employees? Maybe have multiple stands at multiple venues? See, he has to answer those questions. Some of you are probably thinking, you know, I should probably go into the lemonade business. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, you know, I should probably get my kids to do this. And if they, if they succeed, I can take over for them. But whatever you're thinking, you understand that moment of decision. There is that moment when 
all the information that you have and all the experiences that are going through bring you to a point of making some form of decision. For the lemonade stand is, am I just doing this for fun? Am I just trying this out for a while? Or am I going to invest all that I can to make it work? They say that these, these, kind, of, these kind of decisions are, aren't unique to the business world. But when it comes to personal relationships, this is where the decision makings really, really begin to get tough. Over the next couple of weeks, Nick Laprell and I will, will be bringing our lessons that will help us to examine our relationships with Jesus. Now, some of you, if, if you're new to Book of Life here, you may be thinking, uh, what's this all about? What's he really talking about? As I, as I go through this, what I want you to do is just sit back, listen, take as much in as you can. I think most of us in, in this room here are probably ready for, for a serious talk. And before I do that, I'd like to just play a short clip for you concerning that serious talk. DTR. Some of you will recognize what those letters stand for. If you're not sure, let me help you out. If you are a young man in a relationship with a young woman, then uh, chances are these letters are enough to strike fear into your heart. You may run away from, postpone, you may dread the DTR talk. Some young men will even terminate a relationship if they feel like the DTR talk is imminent. It is that official talk that takes place in every romantic relationship. Do you know what it stands for, DTR? Define the relationship. You sit down and you decide where things are going. Have things moved from casual to committed? I remember this uh, date I went on in high school. On the very first date, the girl tried to have the DTR talk with me. First date, DTR. I got out of their PDQ. I just ran away. But at some point, it's important to define the relationship, to see if things are moving from infatuation and admiration to deeper devotion and commitment. I guess that's really what determines how you feel about the DTR talk. How committed are you to the person? If you want it to be just a casual weekend thing, chances are you're not going to be very excited about it. In fact, the DTR talk might make you a little anxious, might even uh, send you into a fight or flight response. I guess what I'm wondering is what would it be like if you were to sit down with Jesus and have the DTR talk? How would that conversation go? How committed are you to Him? I mean, maybe you would be excited to have that conversation. Or maybe it would make you pretty uncomfortable. Really, 
It just depends on how you feel about Jesus. Thank you. I think most of us in this room are ready for that DTR talk with Jesus. We need to define the relationship we have with Christ. We need to find out where we stand with him. In Luke 9, 23... I shouldn't concentrate on that feedback, but I am. Uh, in Luke 9.23, the invitation comes out. If anyone, anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I don't know when's the last time you read through the Gospels, but in Luke, there's a lot of things that are happening Chapter 7 is, is just loaded with, with the things that Christ is doing, his apostles, those that are following him. In chapter 8, it even, it even gets more monotonous. In chapter 9, he's already moved up to, to the northern part of Israel, up, up by the Sea of Galilee, up in Capernaum, and he keeps crossing from one side of the sea to the next in, in his ministry. At this particular time, he calls his disciples together, and he, and he gives them the power and authority to cast out demons and to cure diseases. And he sends them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He says to them, don't take anything with you on your trip. No walking stick, no beggar's bag, no money, not even an extra shirt. He says, whoever welcomes you into their homes, stay there and bless them. Whoever does not welcome you into their homes, shake off the dust of your feet as a warning to them because the kingdom of God was preached and they denied The disciples are going through the villages, they're preaching the good news, they're casting out demons, they're healing people everywhere. People are saying that John the Baptist has come back to life. So Herod Herod gets wind of that and he begins to think about it. He says, no, I, I beheaded John, so it can't be him. But he's still curious. And people are are talking, maybe it's one of the prophets, maybe it's Elijah. The crowds are increasing in size. The disciples come and they report the good news of all their successes to Jesus. And so Jesus moves them to the outskirts of Bethsaida. And the crowds begin to follow slowly behind him. But it starts to get dark. And, and you remember the scenario where Jesus asked the disciples, these folks, you need to send them back into the town so that they can get food, they can get lodging, and, and, uh, and things like that. They're unable to do that. It's, it's getting too late. They can't get there in time. And, and they have nothing to feed them with except for five loaves of fish or five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus asked them to sit down. Now, mind you, we're talking somewhere around 5,000 men plus women and children. And he asked the disciples to sit them down in groups of 50. So do the math. How many groups he had on that, on that hillside. He feeds them. He blesses the food before God, the loaves, the bread, and then the fish. And they, they send it out. And everyone gets fed. Everyone is full, and they collect 12 extra, box, uh, 12 extra baskets of food, bread and fish. Jesus, at that particular time, begins to find a place. He needs to get away from the crowd. So he finds a small place, and he begins to have his personal devotion there. The disciples finally notice that he's not there with them, so they search out to find him. And when they find them, he sits them down, and he begins to teach them. And he says, who do people say I am? They said, John the Baptist, some say. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets of old. 
maybe Elijah. And then he asks, who do you say I am? And, G- and Peter gets up and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. In Luke 9.22, he also told them that the son, of son, the son of Man must suffer and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he told them that they, he would be put to death, but after three days he would be raised to life. Now, I think many of us here would welcome the DTR talk because we're ready to move to a different level of commitment. We're ready to go beyond the the casual and the convenient. I think we're ready to be more devoted. We're, We're wanting to be more committed. And I think we're ready to have this talk with him. Now, some of you may not be ready for the talk. Your thinking goes like this, you know, Jesus is a nice guy. I like coming to church. It gives me something to do on the weekends. It's really cool. You know, I can sit down. I can go to the bistro. I can have some coffee. Sometimes I can get a free bagel, you know, and I can have some, chit, some chit-chat, some, some fellowship with other, other folks that are here. So I kind of like that. You kind of like what's going on. Uh, but when you think about being more devoted, more committed, if truth be known, you, you get kind of anxious. And you're not quite sure that you want to be more committed. And just like uh, uh, Eidelman says, this, you probably get into that fight or flight response. Time to make your exit. Somebody's asking you to be more, more committed. So where do you stand with Christ? Are you a fan or are you a follower? Now, some of you are wondering why I ask this question. You may say to yourselves, aren't we all followers of Christ? I mean, isn't that why we're here in this assembly? I wouldn't be too quick to answer that. The word fan is defined as an enthusiastic admirer. We're all fans of different types of things. Many of us are sports fans. We watch the games. We cheer on the teams. Some of us own jerseys of our favorite players. We understand the concept of being fans. We're fans of uh, the American Idol, The Voice. You say you can dance, and I don't know how many others are on the tube and that we participate. We sit in our recliners and we cheer. You know, we're happy. Uh, we also, we're also moody if they don't do what we do, if our team doesn't do what they're supposed to do. It's easy enough for, you know, to begin to hate them. No longer. I mean, but this is what fans do. They can generate love and they can generate hate in the next second. So, we sit, this, is, this is what fans go through. You see, we sit down in our seats. We open up our programs, our bulletins. We applaud at certain times. And we leave somehow thinking that, as fans, all this was done for us. We get in the car. We evaluate the sermon or the lesson for the evening or the morning. And we kind of give the service uh, and song selection a thumbs up or thumbs down. And we come back and we do it again next week. And I get the fact that some of you are really big fans. I mean, we're really into all this. We know all the songs. We don't need the page numbers for the Bible. We know where to turn. Some of us are pretty fast, and some of us even look around 
and see how fast they are. They watch everybody else struggling through their Bibles, and they know they can get to the right page at the right time a lot faster. You're big fans of Jesus. And let's be honest, being a fan feels pretty good. We can feel pretty good about ourselves because we're great admirers of Jesus Christ. But truth be known, and it is, Jesus never cared about fans. If we really search our hearts and begin to define our relationship with Jesus, there are three questions that we need to answer. And the first one is, why are you here? If you have, if you have a scrap piece of paper, write that down. You need to answer that. Why are you here? If you read through the Gospels, Jesus at different times points in his ministry, at different points in his ministry, he begins and he draws his line in the sand. We've done that as kids. Cross the line, you're on my team. If you don't, you're not. Jesus, in chapter 6 of John, in the height of his ministry, we read that the large crowds were following Jesus. He was very popular. He was, he was working miracles. He was providing food from loaves and fish. And lots of people. The crowds were getting larger and larger, and they were following Jesus. But verse 2 gives us an insight as to why they were following him. See, Jesus knew. He says that they were following him because of the miracles. The crowds came, and they were more concerned with the spectacles. They were more concerned about the miracles and the feeding than they were about the teachings. They didn't care about the life-changing lessons that were coming from his lips. They were there for the show. So I ask you again, why are you here? What is your because? How will you answer that as you write it down? I'm here because the scriptures tells us why Jesus is here. See, his because is because he wants to have a real relationship with you. Is that why you're here? I mean, are you here for the free food? Are you here because you think the seats are comfortable? I sat in those seats. Are you here because you really like the music? Are you here because you have friends that you can, you can fellowship with? You can chit-chat? We have a bistro that has coffee. Are you here because your, your kids love their, 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 their children's ministry teachers? You're here because of the, the Awana program and your kids love that program so much? Is that why you're here? That works fine for a while, but after a while, you're going to need to define that relationship. Those things, those things will soon fade, and you'll have to answer that question. Why are you here? Jesus challenges the fans into a deeper and more, a deeper and more intimate relationship with him. In John chapter 6, verse 66, this is what he says, or this is what the scripture tells us. That from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. When he drew that line in the sand, they had a decision to make. He says, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross. You must deny yourself. You must die to yourself and pick up your cross, not once a month and not once a year, you know, not once every 10th you know, anniversary, he says, but you must pick it up every single day and then follow me. When they heard this, a lot of them went home because Jesus said it's time to define the relationship. For others, it was 
just time to go home. They had nowhere else to go. For some of us, it may just be time for us to go home. You come for a while, you believe you understand all the things that are going on, and yet you keep coming just because of the miracles, because of the show. Instead of wanting what Christ has to offer, you just want basically what Christ can do just for you. But he wants there to be a point where you and I have to define this relationship with him. Why are you here? What is your because? Again, Jesus, his because is because he wants a personal relationship with you as an individual. The second question is, are you all in? Being a follower of Jesus requires you and me to be completely committed. A follower of Jesus has to do whatever it takes to follow Christ, and they are absolutely loyal and completely committed. Now, on the whole, this I know to be true for you and I, being completely committed is it's kind of a hassle for us. It's a hard thing for us to do. I think that we prefer selective commitments. Simply put, we like to customize our Christianity. Oftentimes we look at our relationship with Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but I'm, I'm going to kind of pick and choose the areas in which I follow. You say this, Jesus, I will follow you this day, but don't ask me, please don't ask me to forgive that person that hurt me. Don't ask me to let go of that resentment that I have for them. Don't ask me to let go of the bitterness. I deserve that end of it. Jesus, I'll follow you, but don't talk to me about my money. Jesus, I work hard for that money. I'll follow you, but don't tell me to abstain from these sexual desires that I have. I can't help the fact that I have these desires. Jesus, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to abstain. I'm a follower of Jesus, but that won't stop me from getting what I want. So it's this customized Christianity that says, I will follow Jesus, but only in the areas that make and that are comfortable for me, I will follow Jesus in the areas that I agree with. In other words, I'm a Christian, but I'm not all in. Well then, you're not a Christian. Can I say that? No. You're not a follower of Christ. You're just a fan. And this is not an option. Selective commitment is not an option that Jesus gives us. As a matter of fact, it's not even a possibility with him. There's no bargaining. There's no bartering. There's no finagling. When you decide to become a follower of Christ, you have got to be all in. Fans don't like the idea of being all in. They're not wild about having to make sacrifices or about having to deny themselves or something they desire or crave. But if you've answered the why are you here, then it's pretty easy to figure out whether or not you're all in. If you weren't here for the right reasons, chances are you won't be willing to go all in. Question number one, why are you here? Are you all in? Question number two. And thirdly, have you made, made it your own? Many of us started going to church because of someone else. 
Mom made you come. Dad said you had to. There wasn't an option. Maybe you started coming because of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you came because of your spouse. You came because they liked when you come. You came because it appeases them. And for those of us that grew up in church or who attended church in order to appease a significant other or relative, it can be really easy to become a fan. It's like riding in a car with someone who listens to a particular type of music that you're impartial to. You drive to you're, they drive you to school and they drive you to work every day and every morning. It's Aerosmith. You have Aerosmith fans in here? Okay. I don't really care that much about Aerosmith. I don't hate them. You say to yourself, I don't really like them, but it's fine to listen to. But eventually, a few songs grow, grow on you a little bit, and you can't help but hum along with, I don't want to miss a thing. So you might say that you've become a fan of Aerosmith. And that can happen to us in church. We can, we can come appeasing someone else, and pretty soon we get into the flow of things. We know most of the songs, we recognize the stories, the teachings, and we're kind of fans of Jesus. But that, can't be, but that can be the most dangerous position to be in for us because our faith is not our own. If you aren't pursuing a relationship with Jesus, if you keep coming week after week and begin to create a faith that was someone else's in the first place, you're just numbing yourself to the real thing. You become numb to real faith. You'll become comfortable with a few songs and a few favorite verses, none of which requires you any sacrifice, any personal change. So you have to make your faith your own. Jesus isn't looking for a relationship between you, your mom, and him. And he's not looking for a relationship between you, your dad, and him. He's not looking for a relationship between you, your wife, and him. He's looking for a relationship with you. And that may be one of the reasons that Jesus said the words that he said in Luke 14, 26, and 27. The Lord said that those who come to me cannot be my disciples unless they love me more than they love father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and themselves as well. Those who do not carry their cross and come to me and come after me cannot be my disciples. There are translations that instead of the word of love, they use the word hate. Awkward, but I think he, what the actual meaning is, is if you don't love them more than you love me, you cannot be my disciple. In our culture, in our culture today, our Christian culture today, and it's been around for a while, we have this, this particular saying that Jesus needs to be number one in your life. But there's a problem with that because if Jesus is number one in your life, that means there's a number two, a number three, a number four, and a number five. All of them exchanging positions from time to time. See, Jesus doesn't want to be number one in your life. He wants to be the only one in your life. So, we need to begin to search our hearts in the next couple of weeks and we need to decide whether or not we are followers or just fans. And if that last, little, that last little definition is not unclear, let me put it to you this way. Let's say that two weeks ago, I got married. You were all there at the wedding. 
You know my wife. You saw me make the vows that I made before my wife. I would love her. I would, you know, till death to us part. You were there. And yesterday I was having, I was having lunch at a particular restaurant. And you happened to be at that same restaurant. But I was there with some gorgeous girl. And we were sitting down. And we were having lunch. And you look at me and say, hey, what the heck's going on with you? You know, that's not your wife. Why are you here with her? And I would look at you and say, hey, don't worry about it. See, Irene knows that she's my number one. So it's okay. Yeah, I'd never make it home. And if I did get home, death would be on the door for me. It doesn't work. See, Jesus doesn't want to be your number one. Jesus wants to be the only one in your life. And so again, I tell you, search your hearts. Think about the relationship that you have with Christ. Think about how you operate within the, within the compounds of this relationship. Have you just been a fan? Or do you have a genuine relationship with him? Are you just an enthusiastic admirer? Are you, are you, are you just willing to go on day after day, putting on the garb, putting on, putting on the, the, the hats, the t-shirts, the huge cross hanging, you know, and, and saying the right words, singing the right songs, but not having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you stand with us, please? Stand with me, please. Father, I thank you that you love us so much. I thank you that you care for us so much and that you're not willing to leave us in the state that we're in when we first come to know you. I thank you that you are forever changing us. Your goal is to make us into the image of your son. And we know that your son had a personal relationship with you. You have called us into this. You have called us to quit playing games. You have called us to come to know you, to love you, to think of you as the only one in our lives. And that you are so involved with every, every aspect of our lives. Our money, our emotions, our friends, our family. You're so involved with what, what we think, the words that come out of our mouths. And I pray that we would consider that today deeply, Lord. That we are those that have, as you have drawn the line in the sand, we have crossed over and determined that we are followers of Christ and not just that. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us that much. And I pray that we would, we would be those that would carry our cross daily and follow you. In Jesus' name.